0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. On today's episode, we discuss self-mummifying monks starving and lacquering their insides in a small enclosure to achieve enlightenment with the disturbingly committed ascetic spiritual practice of soku shinbutsu. (gasps) And then Josh jumps to the other side of the consumption spectrum to discuss a reality show that celebrates the very concept of food how it's prepared and what it takes to perform when a terrifying British man is hurling insults at you. That's right, folks. Josh is now the official reality TV guy. Oh, God, why? He's talking about the Gordon Ramsay dish best served angry. Hell's Kitchen. Movies, shows, and video
1: games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content
0: become your starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? <laughs> I was doing pretty good until I saw my face on this Zoom call. <laughs> I feel like I look like <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got the shit filter, the shit face filter on Zoom.
1: <laughs> yeah, the uh, the camera adds 12 hours of sleep deprivation. Oh, I thought it was just 12 pounds. Oh, well, uh, maybe that too. Look, you look real bad all around is what I'm saying. <laughs> No, you look great, as usual. You got the weatherman uh, hairdo going on. Your smile is radiant. Did you, by any chance, go driving in that record-setting snowstorm we had last week? Uh, no.
0: It did snow here a little bit today.
1: So I had some of my students from my tunnel league uh, calling me and saying, like, hey, I don't think we're going to make it because the storm was rolling in. And I was already on my way down there. I was like, that might actually be a good choice but I was already halfway there, so I just went for it, and then on the way home, first of all, there were no lands on the road, it was like total whiteout conditions, and then as I got to, uh, there's one huge choke point on the way home, it was completely backed up for miles, so I took another off-ramp, and as I started going up this off-ramp, I see these cars, it was like, actually, it was like a big truck, like a big dually, Going around this really steep corner and then just start sliding down into the low part of this ramp. And as that as that happened, like my heart rate started going up and I was like, oh man, I may have made a terrible decision. Because you just see there were already like four cars stuck down in like near the Jersey barrier on the inside of this turn. And then I see this big truck start to slide. So I just like switched into lower gear and went all wheel drive and luckily I was able to make it. But it was
0: intense, Brett. So you're saying I'm not going to see you on the YouTube fail snow driving video that I'm going to watch later? No, luckily not. I made it home, but it was like, I felt like I was
1: trailblazing at one point because I was out in an area where there were no lights and the roads had barely been driven on maybe like two or three tracks on the road. So I was basically just trusting that I could just read the differences in topography of the way the snow had laid down it was i mean it took me like two and a half hours to do like a 45
0: minute drive wow that's but pretty i'm intense. here i'm alive i'm so glad yeah the show just wouldn't be the same without you it'd just be you talking about how bad you look on zoom call <laughs> this is true well i can't wait to uh talk about my off top off top me man can't wait to. all hear right it. so um This is a rhetorical question, but what's more badass than a mummy? Well, if it's rhetorical, I just skip the awkward part and have you answer it for me. (laughs) Okay. How about a Buddhist mummy? Have you ever heard about this? It's called Soku Shinbutsu. That does not ring a bell. I can't wait to tell you about this. This is actually uh, something I've known about for a couple of years. It's been on my off-top list for a while. So the term Soku Shinbutsu refers to the practice of Buddhist monks observing asceticism to the point of death. Are you familiar with asceticism or this term? No,
1: that's another word I've never heard before.
0: So essentially it is, um, the definition of it, I looked it up because uh, I'm i a little bit familiar with kind of the Buddhist philosophy where uh, the person that became the Buddha the prince lived this life of luxury. And then when he saw all the suffering in the world, decided to go on a mission to help people end their suffering. So he became an ascetic. And what this means is you're basically abstaining from any sensual pleasure, any kind of gluttony or greed. Uh, and you're kind of like living on the bare minimums. But in this case, asceticism, it's, it's for the purpose of spirituality, enlightenment. But this particular, uh, form of asceticism is definitely turning it up to 11. So the process itself takes about three years and it starts with a special diet. This, as I'm sure you probably have guessed, is not the Atkins diet. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. I think it's the Mokuji Kaigyo diet, which literally means free <laughs> eating. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe we got a couple <laughs> Japanese listeners out there. Mokuji Kaigyo. I'm going to go with that. So these monks, they would forage in nearby forests, and they would exist on tree roots, nuts and berries, tree bark, and pine needles. Now, this diet was meant to do more than just focus their minds. This literally was to begin uh, this biological process within their bodies that's preparing their body for mummification. So it eliminates fat and muscle. And it prevents future decomposition by depriving the body's naturally occurring bacteria of nutrients and moisture. So they do this for a thousand days. Uh, But some of these monks would actually repeat the course two or three times to continue preparing themselves for the next phase of Soku Shinbutsu. So this was a delicious tea brewed of Urushi. It's a sap of the Chinese lacquer tree. And this would begin the embalming process. Yikes! So, <laughs> so, like, what you put on your furniture, but you're putting it exactly. in all of your orifices. Exactly. While well, you're drinking it, essentially, it's which you've already your orifices somehow. <laughs> and another thing to add on here too, uh, some of these mummies were found with stones in their stomach. I couldn't find what the stones were for, but I mean, this is like. You know, maybe they had some craving for iron or something. I don't know. It it must have had something to do with the process, but I couldn't figure out what it was for. The embalming, though, the the lacquer tree tea brew uh, was to render their bodies toxic to insects after death. So at this point, these monks would continue their meditation practice. They would sit in a small pine box, and then that box would be lowered into a hole about 10 feet under the ground. By these other monks, these other devotees, and they had the the one um, that was embalming themselves basically had this little bamboo rod to breathe with, and they had this little bell to ring to let the others know that they were alive. But besides that, they were just covered in charcoal and left to meditate in total darkness. Oh my god! What what a <laughs> uh, what era was this happening in? Is this is a recent so, thing. So they, the first monk they think was uh, that attempted this was in 1081. Um, this mummy was discovered in 1975. This is like the for sure self mummified corpse. Uh, it's a 550 year old corpse of this Buddhist monk named Sangha Tenzin. Um, but they think actually that there's been hundreds of attempts, but there's probably like verified. There's only been about two dozen that have been successful. So, once, once they leave you in this hole, or in this charcoal tomb, essentially, um, they let the corpse sit there for another thousand days after the bell stops ringing, and then they oh unearth... Oh, God. What? <laughs> oh, man. It's pretty this dark. Is... So, they unearth this coffin. So, let me get this straight before <clears throat> yeah. you continue. Hold okay. on.
1: <laughs> so, they are mummifying themselves while they are alive. So, they're, they're basically correct. dying of starvation and, I guess, what, like... Coating themselves in lacquer on the from the inside,
0: exactly. So they are—it's oh, self right. mummification for spirituality, for like uh, in for enlightenment after death. So gnarly. <laughs> Continue. Okay. You know this is why <laughs> I so uh brie and her in-laws are in town right now and they asked uh or my in-laws brie's parents they're all in town right now and they asked what i was covering for the off top and i told them about Sokushin Butsu, and i've been like i think about this all the time and i just got like some really blank stares when i like said what it was and i i think that this is one of the most fascinating little chunks of like religious history But it's just so weird and so gross that nobody likes talking about it or thinking about it. They're like, yeah, we're just going to leave that to the annals of, you know, like somebody getting their theology degree. But besides that, no one needs to like think about this. But I love thinking about it. Well, what's so fascinating to
1: me about it, and I do want to hear more about it, but it's that anyone is this dedicated to anything, especially when it comes to mortality, because, I mean, you're your belief in the afterlife and what's waiting for you has to be so strong to overpower your survival instincts and not just that you're you're not making this quick i mean this is probably one of the most horrific ways a human has ever died and to like intentionally take this on because your belief in the afterlife and what's waiting for you and your rewards or however it's you know however it's framed in their mind it has to be it has to be more encompassing than any other feeling that you have in your entire existence. And that is something that is completely foreign to me.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, um, one of the, one of the more common practices that's similar to this, that I I say more common, I just think it's more known is what I'm trying to say. Uh, have you heard of self immolation? Yeah. There's some really famous photographs of that. So that's exactly so that is you know once again I do not think these practitioners consider uh, sōkushin butsu or self-immolation as suicide. I mean this it is a it is like a spiritual practice that's um, you know for enlightenment or basically to transcend some sort of material materialism that we have or some sort of form of suffering through attachment. Um, but yeah, so to continue this though they would basically take this. The, the corpses out, they'd unearth this coffin, they would look at the body for signs of decay. If the body stayed intact, the uh, other monks believed that the deceased had reached this Soku Shinbutsu and would thus dress these bodies in robes and place them in a temple for worship. Now, if you did show any signs of decay, you were just given a modest bur- uh, burial like everybody blew else. it. That was it. <laughs> Probably had a... Not enough lacquer. <laughs> not enough lacquer had like a unlike thumbs down <laughs> insignia Oh, this is not gonna play well on social media <laughs> so um the my reference for this uh was an article published in 2016 by chrissy howard on all that's interesting.com i'm gonna link to it in the show notes you could also just type the term into google uh it's one word soku shin butsu um You got to see some of these gnarly pictures. I mean, because there is a difference between a body that's decomposing and a mummy that has just been preserved for hundreds of years. And these, you know, these really are the only people that are that are doing this to themselves. Um, So even Wikipedia, if you want to read up a little bit more about it, they have some really interesting stuff about, uh, like I was saying, the the uh, first monk that attempted this uh, successfully, Tenzin, but. Um, yeah, my final thoughts on this Buddhism is already a pretty serious religion. I mean, I think, like most religions or spiritual practices, there's uh many different approaches, and there's a whole wide range of ways that you could practice your spiritual practice or your religion. But you know, this is old school Buddhism in the east, it's pretty serious. Uh, The Japanese, they tend to already have an obsession with perfection. And then asceticism is uh, really the practice of self-discipline or, uh, you know, starving yourself of anything other than what's absolutely necessary. So this is kind of these three things. This Venn diagram are combining to create one of the just the most kind of gruesome, but interesting and most fascinating things. Um, But before you start. Munching on some pine needles, Josh. Don't. Do I would like. <laughs> I would like to remind you that the Buddha himself, after he lived the life of luxury and then he became an ascetic, he decided uh, after he became enlightened that the middle way is the correct way—not one extreme or the other, but right <laughs> down the middle, buddy. How reasonable. From Buddha himself, very reasonable man. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. To <laughs> get to the edge of any scale. You start getting into self mummification territory, <laughs> right? Right. So I, I uh, you know, I like the idea that we all have, um, you know, we're we're capable of more than we give ourselves credit for. But it's interesting to see when the scales tip too far in the opposite direction. Because I, I wouldn't say there's a surplus of self discipline or asceticism in the America. West or in the United States. But uh you know you don't want to go the other way either. There's there's a happy medium. That is great advice. <laughs> Spoken like a true Buddha. <laughs> I'm putting on those uh, putting on those Buddha pounds. Well don't mummify yourself just yet, Brett.
1: <laughs> the show is picking up steam. We need you. <laughs> Perfect. That okay, so the part Honestly, I think I could actually handle being mummified. It seems weird to say that, but the fact that they spend so much time in like the box—I don't know, man. The the uh, th- there's only a few like completely irrational fears that I have. One of them is spiders because I grew up in Texas and literally <laughs> like we had either. we had brown recluses in our house, and they would you would have to shake all of your clothing and your shoes out because brown recluses, which if you've not seen a brown recluse spider bite. When they bite you, it basically it basically dissolves and rots your skin. It's horrifying. They were everywhere in a house. so maybe that's not that irrational. But the other one is <laughs> enclosed spaces. It's just the the fear of like not being able to like move and get comfortable and wiggle and just thinking about being stuck that way all the way until you lacquerize, that is just absolutely horrendous. And now that I mention it, I don't think it could really be handled being mummified. I think that might have been a little braggadocious.
0: Well, you have to keep in mind uh, they've spent their whole life, you know, in seated meditation, essentially preparing for their own death and enlightenment. I mean, they've like they've been working to come to terms with it. That's you know, um, there's not a ton of information about this online, but I am looking forward to you uh, googling it and looking at the picture of the mummy. And, uh, he's wearing sunglasses, which is kind of interesting. He's dumb. <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't, uh, lowered into the box, uh, underground that way. But, um, you know, the, the self-immolation, I mean, if you've seen, like, one of the videos, I think, was somebody protesting, uh, it was, like, a political, like, a severe was political Vietnam issue. War. Was it? I was I thinking it so. was, okay. I, I thought it had to do with, uh. China trying to claim Tibet, and there was a mummy that—I mean, literally. Can you imagine lighting yourself on fire and sitting quietly and not—you know—I'm not looking it up right now. And it looks singer. like there was yeah. one, one in Vietnam and one in Tibet. So we're both right. Okay, all right. Let's go ahead and pat ourselves on the back. We didn't even we did research it. that by beforehand. <laughs> we know stuff. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all I got for. Uh, Sokushin butsu, Fascinating stuff. I'm looking at this mummy right now. He looks
1: like he's wearing virtual reality goggles. (laughs) He he might be. (laughs) Welcome to the new era. That is very disturbing. This picture, looking at this picture and knowing the story, I don't think I would have known what I was looking at before. So thank you for the nightmare fuel, Brett.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I aim to please. So what do you got on your content circuit? Anything to cleanse the palate? Yeah, I got two good things.
1: Two good things Uh that you recommended to me. One is WandaVision. Oh, yeah. I'm almost finished with episode two. Okay, I think I know where it's going. Actually, it's so bizarre, but I'll make a prediction of where I think it's going. Uh, And it's not a spoiler because I have no idea, but I feel like this extremely weird framing device that this show is created through, I feel like it's part of like a... I don't know, like a virtual reality construct in vision's mind as he's being reconstructed because everyone knows that he's was killed at the end of, uh, infinity war. And it was like in a way that he couldn't be brought back. But since he's this, since he's this artificial mind, I feel like there may be a way that, I don't know, maybe they're like re they're retraining a mind to accept the vision, uh, I don't know, like his soul. That's just what I was thinking of where it was going. I could be completely off, but regardless, it's very interesting to see a Marvel show that is
0: basically it's, I love Lucy and it's really good. Well, keep watching buddy. I it's, will. It's, <clears throat> I really feel like this is one of those things. Uh, cause I actually, one of the, uh, my classmates did not like WandaVision. <clears throat> He's, he said it was stupid after watching like, the first two sounds episodes like, or something. Sounds like he didn't get past episode two. <laughs> I have a feeling right. it opens up very it soon. Does. They can't hold this, this is, for very long. This is the show that like pays extreme dividends. And like, even if you don't think it's for you, because I don't, I'm not, I was not an, I love Lucy fan or like a fan of like 50s, 60s, black and white sitcoms. Now that shit but sucks. I, I just, I, you know, I knew to trust Marvel and Disney. <laughs> You know, Disney would with, never do anything evil. Once, <laughs> well, not with content. They might <laughs> exactly. do lots of evil things, but I. But their content's still the best. Comes to content, they're basically Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you're going to very much enjoy it, and it only gets better. I feel like episode three, episode four, you really start to see what's going on, but it just it keeps it keeps you on the ride, man. I I actually I think I whatever the most recent episode is, episode six, um, I felt like I was hit with a ton of emotional bricks. They got me good. They got me good. It's good stuff. Yeah. So what else? The other thing is
1: Snowpiercer. And Brett, this is is the most Josh movie I'd never seen. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Dude. I mean, it was, whenever I watched it, I was like, what the hell was I doing? Because I was like almost intentionally avoiding it because I'd heard a lot about it and I was like, Eh, I kind of have an idea of what happens. They eat bugs and there's a train. but then when I watched it it was like <laughs> it's just so good. It like I, I love how it's basically like a it's almost like a haunted house the way it's set up where they're on a track which is very haunted house and then each little room they go into has its own theme about you know it's like either an obstacle they have to overcome or some crazy scenario that you could never imagine. And then at the end, you know, there's like, I mean, the the payoff is just, I I didn't see the ending coming and the way that it all played out. So the the whole thing, the wrapping and the uh, post-apocalypse, I had one question though. Yeah. (laughs) When exactly did this rail line get completed? Because there's no way they were building this during the apocalypse snowstorm this would have had to have been completed years in advance, which that was that was one, I don't know if it's a plot hole, but it definitely seemed like it would have been impossible to get that rail line that runs, you know, whatever it is, 48,000 miles. It would have been impossible for it to have ever been built. But yeah, well, I had I to think, just
0: kind of suspend that disbelief and just enjoy it. Well, I think he, uh, what's his name, Wilford? Something, Something like, like that. that yeah. yeah, he. I think he... Was like uh, if you were a prepper, but you were also like a billionaire. But also the timeline, like I don't think it was meant to be, um, you know, it's it's kind of takes place in an alternate universe or something. Because I think the timeline take it's you know it, it's like the year 2018 or something like that. Like it's you know not like way way in the future when they started experimenting with climate. And we're you know we're so far behind the game. We're not even admitting that climate change is a real thing yet, let alone uh, jumping on some crazy. Scientific hail marys. Well, luckily, but, um, nothing bad ever happened in this timeline. Yeah, there you go. So smooth sailing. <laughs> smooth sailing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think he was like a like a billionaire prepper that just like knew things were gonna go wrong. But I, I see your point. Yeah, I don't. I. Uh, it would take a long time to construct that railway. Well, regardless, Snowpiercer and WandaVision
1: both get double recommendation from the world's nice. foremost. Contentologists here, and content only contentologists for now. <laughs> I think there
0: are some more people in the Harvard program that will be graduating soon. Yeah, magna so cum laude. Uh, so I, I have to say I haven't been uh, consuming much content other than what's on the GameStop subreddit of uh, Reddit. <laughs> Nothing but memes. Uh, there's a date now, and when I told Brie this. As I was saying it, I'm like now it sounds like I'm in QAnon. There's a date like published. The short squeeze is going to happen March 19th. Dude, you know I'm... that putting a date on it is the number one sin in any <laughs> cult, Brett. It's not it's not a it's not a good sign for me or for others, but I'm holding on, buddy. We'll see what happens. But the other piece of content, and I know you have something to say about this. So I have not been watching this season. I was too busy with training and whatnot. But I think this is actually going to be a very controversial season of The Bachelor. Uh, because some <laughs> oh. <laughs> there, yeah. there's, there's some crazy... Well, so there's... there's uh, I, I think people might think we're going to talk about something else. Because there's been some stuff in the news where Chris uh, Harrison, the host said something um, that was perceived to be racist and is on like a sabbatical. I don't know. There's It's going to be a very controversial. It hasn't happened quite yet, but I just saw something in the news about it. But what I want to talk about is the tandem skydive date. <laughs> the only thing we're qualified to talk about that happens on The Bachelor. <laughs> I actually, I went to the drop zone yesterday. I got three uh, hop and pops in and the drop zone owner was showing another jumper a video of the tandem and I had watched it because I was with the in-laws and my wife and they watched you know that we watched the bachelor and uh, it was not just cut to be dramatic like you know they they say oh it's a crazy episode of the bachelor skydive gone wrong it was absolutely insane so what happened <laughs> for anyone who's not seen it spoiler alert Brett what happened
1: on their landing uh, they smashed into the ground <laughs> It is gnarly. So It's really bad. If you don't skydive, <clears throat> what are you doing listening to this show? But we, we still love you. Thank you very much. But if you don't <laughs> skydive, <laughs> there is something called hooking in. And uh, basically like, a parachute has a recovery arc. When you get into a turn, a parachute tends to dive. And when it's diving, if you let go of the controls, it will naturally recover on its own. And that that path it flies is, is the recovery arc. And with tandems, like the recovery arc is pretty short. Like you have to hook this turn pretty low to hit the ground. And they only show on the bachelor on the, the cut from the show, they only show like after they're already in the recovery arc. It's, it looks like it's, you know, like maybe a second or two after he turned and he's already stabbing out, which is a bad sign. It means he's pushing, he's, pushing the brakes down as hard as he can, trying to get the the canopy to recover. And when he lands, he surfs the girl in. She hits the ground first. He rolls over her. I mean, it is a really bad scenario. And this kind of landing is like the number one way people are killed in skydiving. And there have been several tandem fatalities, uh, one here in Colorado a few years ago where – tandems have hooked in landed killed the instructor and killed the passenger and so they're very lucky
0: that they're not injured incredibly lucky it was very painful to watch yeah it's like
1: uh it's like the th- thing that when you see it happening you want to just like you
0: wish that you could teleport up there and like fix the problem but so what i couldn't figure out and what i was asking the uh, Ben, the drop zone owner, who knows uh, obviously, w- you know, way more about skydiving than a noob like myself. But w- why was he turning low? I mean, this is like the number one rule in skydiving, besides pull, pull on time. Like, no low turns. Do you, uh, like I, I couldn't tell. It looked like he was trying to avoid something on the ground. But do you think he was just trying to showboat for the camera crew or something like that?
1: Well. I mean it's hard to say. Yeah, I think having a camera crew there can definitely affect you. Also, I don't I don't know the skydiver involved, but he looks very young, which it's it's possible that he could have been skydiving from a very young age, like, you know, maybe if his parents are in the drop zone. I read somewhere that he was the son of the DZO, which means you could start skydiving at a very young age, but still skydiving when I was when I was twenty one, I started skydiving. And I felt like I was invincible. And that is not a good combination with skydiving. You don't make good decisions when you feel like you're invincible. You, I mean, I literally had to move away from Texas where I grew up to get rid of my reputation as a dangerous skydiver. So I think that it probably has something to do with a camera crew being there. And when I, I used to live in California and I worked at Scout of Santa Barbara and we had a lot of like the lead singer of the Plain White Tees, some, you know, your favorite band. We had like these porn stars come through and they all had camera crews and they all, you know, they all have like a big show going on whenever they're, they're landing. And it is very intimidating. Like I had, I don't know, maybe 4,000 jumps or something. And if there's a camera crew there filming, you know, they're doing it from a show, like it is it definitely puts you on edge, even if it's something you've done hundreds or thousands of times. And so I think it's probably that age, bad decision-making. I saw, I'll link this. It's a Screen Rant article. It's it's totally written by people that don't skydive. It was speculation that this was staged by the production company. Like they paid oh, this Lord. guy to hook her in. And I, and I was like, I was thinking,
0: <laughs> there's no
1: way. There's no amount of money in the world. You would have to there's practice. There's no way. Hundreds of times crashing on purpose to be able to do it without seriously injuring or killing
0: yourself. And yeah. Wow. That is ridiculous. That is truly a conspiracy theory where we're like, we, we don't believe, you know, it's like, oh, the bachelor scripted, like they clearly crashed that skydive on purpose to like, no way, like there might be some lawsuits. Like, it's amazing. There wasn't like serious injuries. And I heard uh, he tip
1: fibbed. I heard the instructor. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. Broke his leg. Well, and they also, didn't show much after the impact. Like, yeah, they it cut was, him uh, out immediately. Yeah, and then they went to the date where she, where she told Matt, "I have a lot of makeup on my," or she told her parents <laughs> or something, "I have a lot of makeup on my face." Like, and Covering I, I the dude, bruises. I mean, she, I don't even know if she realizes how bad. The, I'm sure somebody has told her at this point that, like, no, you know, has it more of an inside scoop, but like, it, it was really, really bad. <laughs> and another thing in this Screenrant article was,
1: oh, it was the it was the passenger's fault cuz she didn't lift her legs up come on that's why you have a tandem instructor <laughs> yeah. as a tandem instructor <laughs> so when you're training to become a tandem instructor they give you a flow chart of everything that can go wrong and all the solutions to it and it's basically all the way down until you're at the ground one of the like one particular thing that that was really funny on that flow chart is like if you're trying to deploy the parachute and the students are holding on to you it says either bite or punch your student because you have to free your arms (laughs) to deploy right (laughs) and so part of that training is landing a student that is not cooperating you know it's you know if you're trying to stand the landing up and their legs are sticking straight down i mean yeah you could probably like jam their legs into the ground but you know you just like you lean back you flare you rock it back you get the student sliding in on their butt None of that is why this happened. It happened because this guy turned the parachute way too low, and you can see it in the video. He's basically in almost a 45-degree dive when they hit the ground.
0: Well, I was trying to find the tweet that I read recently that I thought was kind of funny that, I don't know, somebody said, like, uh, the the bachelor that I pick is the one that doesn't make me skydive <laughs> or something, but I just, I just tried to Google it to, to find it. <clears throat> But I'm really sad to see that this has been like memified because this was a, I mean, this was a pretty serious incident and it could have been a lot worse. And I, I don't know. Luckily I guess that's what happens with memes, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. We, we hope to everybody you skydive safe and you find love. Big time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how about we take a quick break and when we come back, Josh is going to swoop in Come on, and man. And hook turn into some content. <laughs> oh, God. I hope they can hear me covering my eyes right now. Ooh, content.
1: Hello, listeners. Don't hit the skip forward button just yet. This is not an ad. This is a call for you guys and gals to get involved
0: with the show. So we want to hear from you about your favorite pieces of content and why they're the best. Or you can even tell us if you've checked out a piece of content because we recommended it and uh, if you loved it or not. So contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail dot com or on Instagram or Facebook at the Content Clearing House, and we will read your letters on the air right here. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. Okay, back to the show. Ooh, content. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearing House, Josh. What are you bringing to us today? Hopefully, it's more than a diet of pine needles you know what?
1: The content that I'm bringing today does not mix well with Shoko Shimbutsu, because it's all about eating and cooking. Another is it little, really? Another little bit of serendipity from the content. Oh my out. gosh. We don't plan this stuff ever. We don't. It makes sense when we're talking about space because it's literally 90% of what I think about. But cooking is never something that's on my mind. So it's interesting that uh, here we are. That is inter- That is very interesting. So I mentioned this, also, since we just spent a good portion of time talking about reality TV, there's some more serendipity for you. I mentioned this on the American's Next Top Model show that you, Brett Chisholm, opened my eyes to an entirely new genre of content. Like I used to lump all reality TV into the same boat, just like stupid people doing fake things and passing them off as reality. You know, the Kardashian formula. But then I found Forge and Fire, which we talked about, and that led me down the path to America's next top model, which I'd say is like, that's like advanced reality TV. You have to kind of actually be into it at that point to be watching that. And now it's led me to this another amazing and fascinating show. And there's a formula for the kind of show I like it's talented people being pushed to the absolute edge by unrealistically difficult challenges and all the human drama that creates. And I love this yeah, it formula. Sounds, it sounds like it sounds
0: like reality TV. That's like yeah. the definition of it. Well, <laughs>
1: exactly. But if you take the Kardashian formula, which is just stupid I people doing yeah, fake yeah, yeah. things, take right, that out right, of right. it. Yes, this is another a big part of reality TV, but it's the part I like. So what I what I like about this formula is there it doesn't seem like there's any need to artificially create the kind of problems that make for great viewing. Like when you engineer the challenges of the show to cause the people to ride the very edge of what's humanly possible, then you just film the results. And that's what this show does. It's another show about a topic that I could very easily say that I only gave a passing interest to, which is cooking and food, which I guess is also becoming a little bit of a formula for me. And the show that I'm talking about is Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay. Have you seen Hell's Ooh,
0: Kitchen, Brett? Ooh, very nice. I've seen a few episodes. I can't say I'm a fan. Uh, just because I don't do much cooking and I, I don't know, I've, there's, uh, I think the only cooking reality show that I've, I can say that I've watched quite a bit of is uh, chopped.
1: Well, maybe I'll change your mind today because
0: okay. I was in that exact same boat
1: until about, so I changed, I have a, an entire, another subject that I'd say is like 75% done. And I put it on the back burner because I was like, I just spent four days watching hell's kitchen. I need to start writing some stuff down because obviously I'm not watching this cause I hate it. And I never thought that I would become the reality show guy. It like totally goes against yeah. everything that I thought I was. I mean, sci-fi would be so disappointed in me right now, Brett.
0: <laughs> sci-fi supports you to consume anything you want with as long as it's within the realm of scientific accuracy.
1: Well, that's, I mean, I could, <laughs> depending on how fi you get, that could literally be anything. True. So this show, Hell's Kitchen, 18 seasons, it started in 2005. It was originally a British show adapted to the US. It's available on Hulu, and what's interesting is it runs one day off from live TV on Hulu. It's very unique for a TV show. I've never seen a streaming service that runs. It's basically the the newest season of Hell's Kitchen that just came out, just aired like a day before it's available on Hulu. Once again, Hulu, the best streaming service with the worst interface. But yeah. each season, the show, the way it goes is there are two teams of chefs. They com- they're competing for a job as a head chef at a restaurant, typically one of Gordon Ramsay's restaurants. And uh, they're working in this kitchen. TV set Hell's Kitchen so it's a fully operational restaurant but it also happens to be the television set for the show and it's a progressive elimination format they reduce the field from 20 to 12 chefs all the way down to a single winner over the course of each season and uh, in a typical episode a single contestant is eliminated uh, selected for elimination so each episode there are two teams competing in these cooking challenges prepared by Gordon Ramsay uh, after the challenges, the winning team is pampered and they get all these extravagant rewards and the losing team ends up being punished for the rest of the day. He calls it like chef's nightmare. And that's followed by the dinner service challenge. And that's where they bring all these high profile clients. They bring in the the lead singer of the Plain White Tees and the Bachelorette and all the porn stars. But they bring them <laughs> all in to the studio restaurant. The, the Jenners. T- yeah, exactly. There's always like... There's always some stars sitting in like the chef's booth, which is basically in the kitchen. And uh, the two teams compete in these separate kitchens to complete the entire service under the watchful eye of Gordon Ramsay or, and or his head chefs as they push these teams further and further with these impossible standards that they're holding them to. And at the end of each episode, the team with the worst performance is ordered by Gordon Ramsay to go back to the domes and select two people that they would be better off without. So they have to sit down as a team and decide all together which one of which two of us are the worst. And then they go up in front of Gordon Ramsay and he gives them like the most absolutely brutal reaming of their life. And then one of them is, get the hell out of my kitchen. <laughs> Wait, you said back to the what? Back to the dorms. Yeah, so back to they the live dorms. they live in Hell's Kitchen. So Oh God, there's basically, sounds, uh, it sounds bad, man. It is very rough. And I, <laughs> there's something I want to talk about later that I think uh-huh. you're going to be, be able to relate to when I put it in these terms for you. We'll get to that later, though, because it's something I'm very excited to discuss with you. Okay. So some of the challenges from the show, like uh, during the challenge phase, they'll have competing chefs cook their signature dish without ever touching any part of the kitchen or any cooking utensils. Like they, they did one where they have them paired up with these all-star athletes and the athlete has to cook under the direction of the chef and they're these extremely complicated dishes. So it's a test to see, you know, how well they can communicate and train each other or train other people. And that's that's like, uh, to me, that seems so much like training a student in the wind tunnel because you are you're basically applying years and years of knowledge and you're, you're basically trying to program another person's brain to function the way that you want. And that was just one of the first similarities that I saw to flying in the wind tunnel and instructing in the wind tunnel, which I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on later.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's something that, like that's a totally separate skill. Like you could be a great athlete or you could be a great chef, you could be a great pilot, but explaining how to do that skill is a totally different skill i mean i totally is being a good instructor is is is, uh, completely independent and i'd say it's much harder to learn than just mastering whatever the
1: field is that absolutely that you're trading in
0: because i feel like you have to understand different people's different learning styles and you would have to adapt i don't know it it kind of depends on i think the skill that you're trying to teach but i guess we can get into it later well, yeah, they say you have stuff to say on it. <laughs> they say that people they
1: can't do teach, but that's only in like a regurgitative format. If yeah. it's a skill based, uh, a skill based format where you're trying to train someone like cooking or flying in the wind tunnel, you have to be first of all very good at it, and then you have to be able to break everything down to its component parts, and f- feed those to the person you're trying to teach in the right order so they don't get overloaded. It's just, it's a, it's a whole nother side of mastering something. I think is being able to
0: teach a new person to do it. Definitely. But I I think there's a difference, I guess what I was trying to say. So take the wind tunnel, for example, teaching first timers, you are not going to be adapting your class to an individual, uh, learner's style you're going to be teaching something. You're going to try to perfect your class to teach the most number of people in the best possible way with the given amount of time. Now, if you are coaching somebody in the wind tunnel one-on-one how to free fly or how to do something more advanced, now you have to know enough about the skill and about that student and adapt your teaching style. You know, do they... Want somebody that's a little bit more hard on them, or do they want somebody that is more patient? Do they do they learn by watching you do something, or do they learn by like understanding the mechanics uh, broken down like an engineer would? You know, what, you see what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. It's
1: like with a flying a class of first timers in the wind tunnel is definitely like assembly line teaching, and you are polishing your class to the point where it will get through. To the most amount of people in the least amount of right. time exactly yeah and then coaching that's more of like psychologically analyzing the people that right. you're flying with learning exactly. about their lives and learning about the things that inspire them and the things that make them shut down and it is yeah i think it, it all kind of falls under the same umbrella though of understanding how to get information, complicated information, across to someone in the simplest terms, for sure. So that was the teaching the star athletes to cook. That like spoke to me. Uh, another one of the challenges they they have to on site a dish, which on site is like a climbing term. It's basically like when you climb something that I've ever seen have haven't ever seen it before. You climb it in the first try. So they have to on-site these brand new dishes after seeing Chef Ramsay cook it once. So they're being tested on their ability to, to identify all the ingredients, all the seasoning and the plating, the way it tastes. They also have to do this all after just eating the dish at a breakfast. So they have no idea the dish is even a test until they're done eating it. And then they do the another one that was really interesting was these blind team taste tests. So they're blindfolded. They're given a flavor. They have to identify to test their palate. They're identifying the, the flavor. If they misidentify it, then their teammate gets blasted in the face with like mashed potatoes or gets gravy dumped on their head or something. And then each test or, uh, each chef takes turns in that testing slot. And the other guys are kind of writing on their ability to identify things to their palate. So these are all extremely unrealistic tests, but you know, extreme and unrealistic expectations breed except exceptional performers from those that survive these kind of tests. And then these challenges lead into the punishment and the rewards. So like the, the rewards are like spa days or beach days or private trips in a Lamborghini with Gordon Ramsey. They even went to, I fly and flew in the wind tunnel, but the losers, they end up like gutting fish or breaking huge blocks of ice into small cubes by hand or cleaning all the gravy and potatoes out of the carpet from the blind taste test or the worst thing that I've seen <laughs> they're hauling hundreds of pounds of raw fish into the kitchen. And then for some reason they have to drink this fish gut puree like a milkshake and they have to down an entire glass of it. And then the whole team has to finish but one person has like an actual chocolate milkshake, so one person's like, "Oh, this isn't so bad." The all the all the others are drinking fish guts. It's just so brutal and mean. But what it boils down to is, you definitely want to win the challenges. And then wow, the, that sounds uh, a,
0: like a pretty healthy milkshake, though. It's high in the uh, yes, high omega in protein. three. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> way better than lacquer. <laughs> That's true.
0: So then Unless there's the main event. yourself. Uh-huh. The,
1: the dinner service. So it's this fast extremely unrealistic scenario they put these people into these punishingly impossible standards so gordon ramsay is standing uh he works a slot called the pass which basically he is doing quality control for every every dish that comes out he'll go over to the blue side and he'll give them like a six top which is like six orders and he'll yell them out super fast and then he goes over to the blue side does the same thing and uh if anyone is like slow they're not communicating he just starts going into this these tirades of just some of the most amazing insults and swears i've ever heard and i mean several times an entire team has been kicked out of the kitchen tells them fuck off and this is on fox so it's all bleeped and blurred yeah uh, but because you know they screw up orders or they send out raw food it's just repeatedly he'll like he'll be punching fish and throwing it against the wall, kick them out. You know, it's you're not able to keep track of a million tiny little things. He's pushing these guys harder than you've ever seen anyone cooking a meal has ever been pushed. And then at the end of each dinner service, the weaker team has to select the two weakest members and then Gordon Ramsay decide who's gone. And the winner, what's so interesting is since the winner is becoming the head chef at one of his restaurants, the show is essentially the world's most difficult job interview which is such an awesome framing for a show.
0: That's awesome. All right, I got, a, I got a question here about Gordon Ramsay, and I feel like you got to answer this from the gut because I, I have seen some like YouTube, um, I don't know, just like the things that have gone viral where he's yelling insults or, uh, I don't know, one of the people on the show had like a dramatic, like they almost got into a fist fight and all kinds of stuff. Do you think Gordon Ramsay is playing it up for the television show a little bit? Or do you think he's legitimately this upset and angry? And I think of it as like a Simon Cowell thing. Like Simon Cowell does not seem legit to me. It seems like he's playing a character. But Gordon Ramsay seems legit. But I don't know why. And I haven't really seen the show enough to to have uh, that like dedicated of an opinion.
1: So my opinion is that he, I, I've watched some other shows. Now I've seen his Instagram. It seems like when he's not in Hell's Kitchen, he 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 hasn't possibly high standards. But it's because he's you know total master and he knows every little bit of everything about cooking. But when he's in Hell's Kitchen, I think I, I was going to make this uh, comparison later. I'll make it now. We'll get into it later. Okay. But, but it's basically. Like FITP, the flight instructor training program at the wind tunnel, which you and I have both been through. So, in FITP, you are put into the wind tunnel with a trainer who is, you know, one of the best in the world, and they're pushing you far beyond where you think your own personal standards are. So, you're getting into the wind tunnel. I did my FITP with Rusty, who appeared on this show, episode 14, Tom Cruise skydiving interview that we did with him and you know rusty is he's top of the line he's like one of the most elite skydivers and trainers that exists and he's put in there with somebody like me somebody who doesn't know anything about being an instructor and has to whip me into shape and so during fitp you are basically broken down you know like your your physical and your mental abilities to handle stress is broken down through you know a series of brutal tests and then they kind of build you back up and it's it's what it seems like Gordon Ramsay is doing you wouldn't you could never run a kitchen the way he runs hell's kitchen because the people out in the restaurant are like you can tell that they are excited to hear him exploding at these people so he is he i I feel like he's definitely this mad but He's not being professional on purpose because one, it makes great television. And two, it's adding a layer of stress that if these guys can handle him, tell him fuck off the whole time they're cooking and calling them knobs and donuts the whole time, then <laughs> you can definitely handle working in a real restaurant where that stress is probably dialed back like, you know, seventy to eighty percent.
0: Well, I'm very happy that Rusty had uh, a lot more professionalism (laughs) Yes, (laughs) because (laughs) he didn't swear nearly as much as Gordon Ramsay. Because I don't think I could have handled any more emotional or physical trauma than FITP already was. And I know the comparison you're going through, or going for rather, is uh, between FITP and Hell's Kitchen, but the the, uh, comparison that I'm going to take away from this is that Rusty Lewis- is the Gordon Ramsay of wind tunnels?
1: You're not the first person to say that.
0: <laughs> I bet. I actually like they. They kind of look similar a little bit too. They're both British, so <laughs> they are.
1: They can't be. Their relation can't be that far apart. It's a small <laughs> island. I do want to tell you some interesting stuff. We're going to talk about FITP in a minute because there's a lot. There's a lot to it. FITP, and it's something we've never really discussed here. We talked a lot about skydiving and one wheels. God help you all. But we haven't discussed <laughs> FITP or wind tunnels that much. We're going to get into it, but first I want to kind of set the stage with Gordon Ramsey a little bit. So he, you know, he's a famously brutal chef, probably from shows like this, both in the way that he berates these people, but also like in his honesty, like he, he's never lying to these people. He knows what he's talking about. He's an absolute master. And once he's on his, on your side, he seems extremely supportive in every way it's very entertaining but i feel like there's a part of him where this anger is real like he grew up in uh Johnstone which is a place in england uh, and apparently like his father was this hard drinking womanizer and his early life was just full of like abuse and neglect he said that uh, this is from this article on mash.com he said that Anytime his dad got drunk, any gifts that he or his siblings had got for his mom, they would just be smashed because his dad knew that it belonged to her and that that would hurt her. And they also moved around a lot because his father was constantly losing jobs. His brother has struggled with substance abuse. And he's lost friends in the cooking industry to cocaine overdoses, which apparently Coke is rampant in the cooking industry. But despite this rough upbringing, he has worked his way to the top of the world of cooking he's earned 16 michelin stars which is one of the most prestigious cooking awards that any chef can be uh, rewarded they're awarded by these anonymous inspectors so you never even know if you're being tested he's owned dozens of restaurants uh 19 television shows he's worth 220 million dollars so he's definitely you know he's the top he's the top of the line when it comes to chefs and the kitchen his tyrannically difficult standards are they're so outlandish and probably 45% of the audio is beeped out swear words like it's it's repeatedly fuck off and one of the best <laughs> insults I've heard was one of the chefs asked him was there anything redeeming about my dish and he says yeah the plate it was served on now fuck off oh my God. Like, such a burn <laughs> <laughs> but if you can survive that style, he definitely brings out the best in, in the people that he trains. It's like a very militaristic style, and he also, you know, the over-the-top insults. It's it's one of the reasons you keep coming back to this show, and you can tell that the contestants curse way more than a normal person ever would. They totally start to adopt his communication style. It's kind of like the equivalent of adopting someone's accent when you go to a foreign country. Like the the guys that. That are running like the the blur edits for the show. They're probably just so sick of applying that blur filter. It's it's probably like ninety percent of their day.
0: (laughs) They they must have like full time staff members that uh, bleep Hell's Kitchen. Totally, it's exactly what it is.
1: And you know you get you get like a really good glimpse into like human psychology. It the show really brings to light how weak excuses make you appear. Like when repeated mistakes are happening nobody wants to hear why they only want to see improvement and that's that's pretty much like gordon ramsey's official motto you know when people start giving him excuses he'll he'll do things like he has like a, a fifth problem with you the night he'll go shut your mouth and come over here he won't even give him a, an ex he won't even give him a chance to talk so good oh man <laughs> so have you ever heard um ever heard the quote never trust a skinny chef uh I have. Yeah. There's a lot of trustworthy chefs on this show, Brett. But um uh, dis- despite Gordon- <laughs> Wait, are you, say- <laughs> are, you say- are you saying there's not there's a lack of skinny chefs? <laughs> and if they're on the show, they're usually gone very early.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> but this is also a little bit of background Gordon Ramsay. Um this is from a men's journal article. So despite his extremely high standards in the kitchen, he had apparently like let himself go. This is a quote from him. He said, I was overweight, 18 stone, which is 252 pounds. I looked like a sack of shit. I looked at the pictures and think, how did Tanya stay around? Tanya is his wife. Because Tanya has got better looking and more gorgeous. And there she is getting in bed with a fat fuck like me. (laughs) (laughs) He also he also said that he feared that he wouldn't be around much longer if he kept up his uh, his unhealthy ways since his father passed away at 53 from health issues. And it, you know, it totally makes sense that he would be overweight because, you know, one of his rules is you taste everything and he eats a lot on camera. It seems that that seems weird eating on camera, but he does it like a total pro. He eats like a scientist conducting an experiment. Like when you see other people eat on film, you're just like facepalm like this is not the way gordon Ramsay would eat on film you idiot
0: (laughs) i actually don't see people eating on film very much i think that's like a it's definitely a trope of the bachelor they like sit there for their dates and you never once see them take a bite of their food
1: well you see a lot of eating on hell's kitchen and uh you know never trust a skinny chef gordon Ramsay lost 50 pounds but in this case i feel like he's grandfathered in i think i feel like he did his homework and then he pulled back from uh, from being fat.
0: So the idiom, the saying, I thought you were going to say is, "If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen."
1: No, Brett, that would be stupid.
0: Okay, <laughs> glad we got it out there because <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it for the last like five minutes since Whew. you said, "Have you heard the saying?" Like yes, I, I have. I'm surprised that's not this show's official motto.
1: You know, if this Even show they was, knew it
0: was too much,
1: if this show was run by the weed industry, which is notorious for loving its puns, that'd probably be the only tagline you'd ever see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we already discussed FITP, but the reason I brought that up is I realized that FITP is a reason that I like these shows. Like, how much do you feel like FITP d- prepared you? For life's challenges, but before you answer that, like, tell me a little bit how your FITP went. Like, you already said it was hard, but was it one of the hardest things you'd ever done up to that point in your life?
0: Yeah, and it probably still is. And I probably wasn't strong enough or good enough to be an instructor. I I think I just barely made it through FITP. If I'm being totally honest with you, and honestly, being a wind tunnel instructor, not only was it one of the best jobs I've ever had, and it brought so many great relationships into my life and it was, you know, such a, you know, more than a confidence booster. I mean, it helped nourish this passion for this activity that I am still doing to this day. And I hope to do well into my, um, you know, older years. Uh, and what, like what an opportunity to be able to learn how to fly your body and then share that love and share that passion with other customers, whether it's first timers or experienced skydivers, but, you know, the the job is difficult. I think there was a misconception potentially. I don't know if this is true, but I remember our mutual friend Derek always saying that, um, you know, his assumption was that people would come in to fly in a wind tunnel and they would just assume that the people that work there are like, like a carny, basically. But then they'd find out like, uh, oh, these guys are like athletes, you know, and especially at the Colorado tunnel. I mean, we had... Gold medalists, silver medalists, world record holders—I mean, some of the best skydivers, absolutely. Participation in the world. award holders. <laughs> yeah, I have several participation ribbons for <laughs> well, all. You were sorts homeschooled, of <laughs> millennial activities. <laughs> but I, I mean, the job—I sucked at it for probably at least six months. I think um, we all did. I know Derek V listens to the show, so maybe he'll text me and tell me if I sucked for longer. Um, but you know, it was a, it's a very difficult job and you just have to be okay with sucking at it even after FITP for a long time. And then like a year later, you're like, okay, I kind of get this, but it's, it's still one of those skills that I imagine like being a chef. I mean, you know, there's certain skills that you could spend your entire life perfecting and still have things to learn. And that those are the best kinds of skills.
1: Yes. Body flight is definitely that. Like I've been... Skydiving for 20 years going on 21 years and flying in the wind tunnel since 2008 and I feel like Every day there's still something I look at like I have I don't know how to do that I need to learn how to do that There's more things and it's constantly evolving because all these amazing athletes that participate in it are innovating And since you're operating in what is essentially a zero zero G environment with wind deflection really like creativity is the only limit of what humans can do there are probably things that we'll be seeing in 20 years in body flight and skydiving that never even occurred to people alive now that they could even happen but fitp the flight instructor training program No wait, can it, I
0: can I be an asshole and correct you on something? Sure. You're not in 0G, you still have one gravity acting but, on you. True. But from your sense
1: uh like From your personal sense, yeah, you're weightless. You are in a weightless room because you're not falling. I like it. But the interesting thing is that you can go up. It's it's a if you have not flown in a wind tunnel, people, please find the nearest wind tunnel to you. They're all over the U.S. It's amazing. Yeah, there was
0: actually when I was in training in um, in Florida. There's an open air wind tunnel in Miami that I really wanted to fly at. I saw it in a story of a guy on Instagram I followed that I skydived with out in Minnesota this last summer. Um, His name's David, and I reached out to him and he's like dude you have to try I've never flown in an open air tunnel I've flown in the flyaway in Las Vegas which is you know it's still enclosed but I would love the experience of that would feel like floating yes, if you're outdoors it just fly fly up in the air I would love that
1: yeah that would be definitely a dream flight an open air tunnel like that
0: let's do it let's buy one yeah content clearing trip it. Yeah, with all our content clearinghouse uh, sponsorship money, we can build our own open air wind tunnel, let people fly in it for free. Yeah, we're
1: just giving away all this sponsorship (laughs) time for free since we talk about things we love. All right, but let's talk about FITP. So FITP is an extreme version of what the job actually is. They push you to the edge to find out your mental and physical limits. And that is to prepare you to be able to casually handle the rigors of, t- of tunnel instructing, which you've also already discussed is not easy. It's physically demanding and you're basically always on a stage. You're in the observation tube. Everyone is watching everything you're doing and everyone there is an expert. So everyone is also judging you. And I thought that I would show up to FITP, I would do 20 hours of training and ding, I'd be a tunnel instructor, but it is not like that. We discussed Rusty from episode (laughs) fourteen. He's best trainer in the world. (laughs) Extremely brutal. He's very good in the wind tunnel, and he knows how to chisel an instructor into shape. So, the comparison between Rusty and myself during my FITP it was basically like an adult beating up a child. So, FITP usually runs like four to six weeks. The first two weeks, there were some guys in my class from from Latvia, and they were already kind of experienced. So they were in and out and then I essentially had a one-on-one with Rusty for a month. And Rusty, he doesn't swear as much as Gordon Ramsay, but that British accent became so scary. It was basically the <laughs> sound of failure and disappointment for me during my training and it stuck with me for over a decade. Like I can imagine the Hell's Kitchen survivors having a very similar effect with Gordon Ramsay. Did you did you feel that w- that way when you hear a when you hear Rusty?
0: After a while, I mean, it, it, it's hard not to be a little bit intimidated by Rusty in that context, <laughs> or at in any context, because he's just so good at everything that he does, and he's just such a professional that I, in anything that he does, that I feel like he's a Tom
1: Cruise for God's sake.
0: <laughs> you're just bound to fall short. Um you know of of those expectations that are set. I mean, he sets the bar high, but but he's fantastic, man. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. Yeah. Great, great leadership qualities that are just inherent to him.
1: And and FITP like it's designed to destroy you. Like they try to get you to your breaking point, and then still, if you can see see if you can still perform. And from what I hear, it's gone a little bit soft over the years as the tunnel industry has exploded. Like there are over fifty tunnels in the U.S. When we were training you could absolutely fail and be sent home. Like I had a friend that washed out and was kicked out of FITP and sent home, which is a hard decision to make because it's about $20,000 investment to train an instructor. But I've heard in the last last few years, the candidates in the FITP program are essentially pushed through and trained until they pass, which makes sense because the demand for instructors is so much higher these days where there were 50 tunnels in the U S but because of that, like the requirements are a bit easier than they were when we went through it.
0: And now this, this, I do want to say something about this. This might just be one of those cases where, you know, we kind of like move on to a different chapter in our life and we look back and say, Oh yeah, we had it harder. Um, You know, there's, I feel like there's that bias in human psychology. That's the, the grandpa saying to his, grandkids i was walking uphill both ways but the other thing is uphill both ways in the snow (laughs) (laughs) but the other um philosophy behind the changes at least my understanding i do not this is my conjecture but this is maybe something i've heard and maybe something i've put it together in my mind but um the focus when we were going through FITP was in spotting. So Rusty would, you know, fly up in the air, be a really bad student. He'd come down hard on his back or head down, and we'd have to catch him in these different orientations from, you know, sometimes like 20 feet high. And of course there is wind resistance, but you're essentially catching a person from 20 feet with a little wind helping you. Um, My understanding was the philosophy more recently has gone towards preventing spots. So you do not want to let the student get up to 20 feet because, you know, there's even with the best instructor, there's mistakes will be made as we've seen with any industry or with any anything where humans are involved. So by preventing the spot, you're removing somewhat of that chance that you don't get the spot if it does get really out of control. I don't know if I explained that very well, but you know, I'm I'm totally for preventative measures over being really good at catching somebody when things get out of control and uh, there have been instructors like the other derek that we mentioned that like he gave his students his first time students i should say extreme freedom but he also had the skill set and the ability to like never miss a spot when it got out of control like he caught people a hundred percent of the time without fail so he could give them that freedom but i i think that it's Maybe a little bit better to err on the side of caution and prevent people from, uh, you know, their first time. Like, no one needs to be flying up 20 feet their first time in the wind tunnel.
1: Agreed. Prevention is definitely the best way to instruct. But I think the fact that you can't fail definitely argues towards the standards being easier. Because when you have have the specter of failure and being sent home and fired looming over you, it adds a, an entirely different set of mental challenges. And I remember feeling that like every day when I was training.
0: Yeah, for and sure. I, I mean, I it's serious business and, you know, instructors should be held to the, the highest standards. And that's why, like, I was very proud to work in the industry that I did. Like, I worked very hard to try to deserve to be there. Still felt like I didn't for a long time, but that's the level of, expectation that there was. And I, you know, I would want nothing less for that industry and where I worked. Agreed. You know, when when
1: people talk about adversity being the precursor to satisfaction, like I never really appreciated that until FITP. You know, before FITP, I was unknowingly a little bit of a bitch. But like (laughs) afterwards, I felt more prepared to handle myself just like as a man going through the world. And it was because FITP taught me how to push through my own self-inflicted boundaries and it taught me that I could keep going even when I felt like I was gassed out and that was one of the, the most important lessons and that's you know it's like take it back to Hell's Kitchen that's exactly what he's doing to these guys when he's berating them
0: so Rusty the, the Gordon Ramsey of wind tunnels made you a man
1: you could say that yeah Do you have any uh, uh, (laughs) embarrassing? You did. Good good point. Any embarrassing FITP stories?
0: You know, I can't think of any um, from FITP specifically. I don't know. I I, one that just comes to mind is uh, so there was kind of a next level of instructing in the wind tunnel. Once you were like kind of decent as like a beginner instructor, you could get the next certification, basically, which would allow you to... uh, We called it fly with flyers, where you would be able to take your feet off the net while holding your student and fly with them. And then you could take them 10, 15, 20 feet, and you had control over them. Um, But there was different sign-offs, different certifications for this. And uh, so I had been signed off at this point to fly with flyers. I actually felt like it was one of the things I was good at. Whereas, where like, I struggled to be a good instructor at the beginning. Once I was flying with flyers, I, I don't know. Maybe it was, like, my height and I had enough surface area and body control that I felt like I really had control over the student. Whether it was a, you know, six-year-old, uh, very light, or it was somebody that was in ex- excess of 200 pounds. Like, I felt like I could fly with them, show them a... Trustworthy chef? Yeah. There you go. But... Uh, before I was certified to fly with them above the height of the glass, I would occasionally take students up there, you know, just not for long periods of time. It was maybe just to fly them up, fly them down. You were well, a little bit of a rebel. <laughs> this is a long time ago. Well, um, I didn't think that anybody had really taken notice of this. The next <laughs> safety meeting, which we'd have these monthly safety meetings where all the instructors would get together and uh, we basically get tortured for, you know, uh, an evening, um, catching, all taking turns, catching rusty And in retrospect, really the examiners that were throwing the spots were getting tortured way more than us. But, you know, they just, they were the leaders and we were just, we were just the, uh, the instructor staff. The safety meeting well, was kind
1: of like you had to re up your ability to work there every yeah. two or three months. For and sure, it was, it was like a check ride for a pilot. We yeah. would dread it. I don't know about you, but when I see a safety meeting on the schedule. It would make oh. the next
0: two weeks really hard to get through. We we all dreaded it absolutely. Yeah. Well, at this particular safety meeting, uh, we once you were certified to fly with flyers, that was part of your safety meeting. So you know, with Rusty, that I mean, this was. I think he was the hardest on us when it was time to fly with flyers. It was extremely challenging, and especially if you messed something up. Right. In the next so, few weeks. Right. So he was like trying to blast off and I was like keeping him down, um, you know, while we were both flying and I'm holding on to him. And then at one point he like stood up on the net and he told me, he's like, Brett, I want you to take me up there. I've seen you take <laughs> students up there. So let me go up high. And I you. was like, it was just, he flat out like in that moment called me out. Like, I know what you've been doing like you're not going to get away with keeping me under the glass like you're going to take me above the glass and I'm going to throw spots and this is how it's going to go and uh you know it uh, that was one of those moments where I just remember like oh shit like <laughs> <getting> <laughs> caught, you've done you done know? it <laughs> how about you you've got to have a story since you brought it up oh yeah
1: I w- i'm so <laughs> glad you asked brett um when is i this was the
0: one where you knocked yourself unconscious
1: No, that was uh, after I was signed off. Yeah, I I basically flew into the wall, knocked myself out, and I was partially conscious, flew out into the the waiting area, (laughs) passed out immediately. And then whenever I woke up, everyone was fanning me, and I was like, what are you guys doing in my house? And then they were like, I think we need to go to the hospital. Oh, my God. So I did learn a lot about personal responsibility from that. That was... I was writing at the edge of still feeling invincible. Yeah, that's not the story though. The probably the most embarrassing thing that happened in FITP was uh, we were doing what's called controllability, which is where the instructor, the trainee, myself, I'm standing, and Rusty, the trainer, he's on his he's flying on his stomach, and I'm holding on to his hip and his shoulder, and he's spinning around in circles. And my objective is to try to stop him from spinning. So he basically spins so fast that it blows me off my feet. <laughs> I do a laid out backflip, fly face first into the door frame. I boom. I like hit my face on the rubberized door and then like get out. And he's like, Oh, just go sit down. So then we stop the training session. I'm like in the back room, just like resting. I come around the wind tunnel. I go, I see all the employees all standing over at the, uh, the TV, the TV's turned away from me. I'm like, Hey, guys, what's going on? I work here. What are we all doing? And they're like, yeah, check this out. Turn the TV around. It's like a loop of me doing a laid out backflip
0: face first into the wall. Like, isn't this great? I'm like, wow, (laughs) I think this is going to be a fun place to work. You know, I I did just think of an embarrassment. This wasn't a safety meeting moment, but it was brought up at safety meetings. Um, So a lot of times when we messed up the video, you know, either for educational purposes or I think just for levity's sake, the video would be projected to all of your coworkers uh, and discussed in front of all of your coworkers. So this particular one at the end of every class. So we'd fly every person in our class uh, twice usually. And then at the end, if we had the time, which we almost always made the time because it was a great incentive for people to come back. We'd kind of jump in, we would do all our tricks and we had this like routine or repertoire, like 30 seconds, maybe a minute of just our your best demo. material. Yeah. Your your demo, your demonstration flight. And it was a way to get customers back in the door. You could say, Hey, you know, you guys can learn to do all these tricks too. If you come back and I can coach you and, and so forth. And people would, I mean, they, we could teach them all kinds of stuff, but on uh, one of my signature moves, because it always looks impressive when people would like jump in and blast off or jump in and do a flip. So, one of my signature moves is I would front flip, do a half front flip from the door, standing up into a head down uh, body flight position, which is like a difficult position. And I'd start carving and flying around. But other times, I would jump in and blast <laughs> up to the top. <laughs> well, this particular time, it Sounds was like a you big got your class. wires crossed it was a big class of like 12 people you know you're tired you're like just for all <laughs> these people they all had a great time you, you get them all okay guys let's come up to the glass I'm gonna be really awesome and show you all my cool <laughs> tricks and as I jumped in I didn't really commit to doing one or the I either so I was either gonna front flip to my head or I was gonna just jump in and blast up to the top. Well, I got kinda caught in the transition between the front flip and blasting up on my belly. I went from the door to the top of the glass on the opposite <laughs> wall about in you know, maybe a quarter of a second, like wham, smash upside Teleport. down against the wall, kinda get my bearings while flying, like can't really recover like, you know, I keep flying, do my demo, but like people know I've messed up. Like they it was so obvious that I had pulled a really stupid dummy move. And of course, that moment uh, lived in infamy at the next safety meeting. Immortalized.
1: <laughs> yeah. while, while you were flying around a pike, did you see all the dads <laughs> on the outside putting the tip money back in their wallets? Yeah. yeah. That's...
0: <laughs> like, I was going to tip this guy, but clearly he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> this guy needs a Gordon Ramsay in his life. Oh, good times, man. All these stories just come rushing back all these memories and we've
1: we've been talking about FITP for a long time but it's clearly because this had such an impact on our lives it really did FITP was a turning point in my life I think of so many things that would not have happened if I had not completed FITP you and I would not be friends I actually wouldn't be friends with any of our best friends the entire crew bar Derek Mike DV Rusty all the people we've been talking about all night I probably never would have met my wife. My children probably wouldn't exist. It's crazy <laughs> how much of it hinges on FITP. Like that was,
0: it was such a turning point. And, you know, that's- I met, I met my wife at the wind tunnel. I was her wind tunnel instructor. Didn't
1: we all? <laughs> I think we all did. And I'm almost done talking about this, I promise. But something that, so so now I've been- I haven't been instructing in the wind tunnel for probably six years, five or six years. I just, I just privately coach now and it's kind of like an entire different world, but it's, it's what you were talking about earlier about the the psychological side of it and learning what makes each individual person tick and developing communication. You, You know, I end up becoming awesome friends with all these people because you get to know them all so well, but something that tunnel flying and, coaching has taught me is I think there are three ingredients in the recipe to success. I think there's talent, motivation, and teachability. I think you have to have all three to really go to the top. Two, you can be pretty successful. If you only have one, I feel like talent is the worst because talent lulls you into a false sense of security. And I've seen people that are extremely talented, but not highly motivated and not teachable. And usually talent will take you to like I don't know the 30 or 40 percent mark with without like the motivation to learn and to be teachable and to take direction you're basically gonna be stuck there no matter how and in, how innately talented you are I'd agree with that I'll buy it and this is something that comes up in Hell's Kitchen too because you see people that are extremely talented chefs but they have a bad attitude they think they're gonna skirt right through they're not really motivated by beating all the other contestants or becoming better. They just, they think they're going to just coast. And it's like, you know, that's the, those are the people that burn out very easily and very early. Yeah. If you haven't very seen nice. a lot of wind tunnel flying also, we will share, uh, we'll share a team video of mine. a Collective video. Uh, I used to be on a scout or wind tunnel team. And uh, we'll share that in the show notes. So if you're not a tunnel flyer, check that out. It might be, uh, you know, it might inspire you to go, want to go do something amazing.
0: Did you ever, uh, I don't know, like win any awards or anything in your wind tunnel days? World's most humble man trophy. <laughs> That's right. I got a, <laughs> I got an iFly participation certificate. Yeah. Like I said, you were homeschooled. So let's wrap this thing up, Brett.
1: I truly well, I, I truly enjoy watching people perform at their highest ability and solving problems in these high stress environments. I think that's why I'm starting to like these shows. Like I love the way that this show evolves. The competitors start off as members of a team and as the season progresses, they form alliances and rivalries. When only two competitors remain, the finalists have to run the kitchen them, themselves and, as the head chef they have to work the pass which is where Gordon Ramsay usually works in the showdown. And then they have to build their team from all of the eliminated competitors throughout the season. So those rivalries really throw a monkey wrench into this final dinner service. It's really brilliant because you know Gordon Ramsay isn't training them to work as a chef. He's auditioning them to be the head chef in one of his own flagship restaurants. And part of that is that they have to they have to be a phenomenal chef to start with but they also have to be able to lead and deal with these problems as they arise. And if they've been paying attention to his militaristic style all season, they should have all the tools they need to, you know, really whip these people into shape and get them to perform properly. It's like, you know, like America's next top model, there's also all these success stories. There's so many winners that have continued to work in these various high-profile food industry jobs either like as the head of a hell's kitchen or in these other just super classy restaurants which i found uh, I found some links that we'll share on that as well talking about chipotle exactly your favorite <laughs> i hate to become the reality tv show guy because that seems so lame when i say it but i'm really just a good content guy and hell's yes. kitchen is undeniably good I'd say start towards the end, season 18, 17, but definitely work your way back to season 16 because it's the most brutal I've seen so far. And if I could only give you one piece of advice, Brett, it would be don't watch this show when you're hungry.
0: Oh, nice. Well, thanks, Josh. I can't wait to check out Hell's Kitchen. You know that I uh, always have the taste for a little bit of uh, reality television. Some but those this weed actually, industry puns. <laughs> this actually sounds like the type of reality TV that anybody could get behind, and that's why you're paid the big bucks as a contentologist. Cha-ching! And it was also really fun reflecting on our wind tunnel days—some of the best days of my life. Uh, you and I jumping out of hot air balloons together and flying up to the turd veins, drinking Red Bulls at the top. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that was a real thing. We would hang from the turn vanes that we're not turning. They were stationary, but we'd hang from the metal bars at the 45 foot mark at the very top and drink Red Bull for some reason. Because oh, we were kids. awesome <laughs> kids those days because we were immortal. <laughs> so uh, be sure to find us on Instagram at the content clearing house. We also have a discord, uh, a Facebook page. You can email us contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Am I forgetting anything?
1: check the show notes for the discord link
0: oh there you go show notes we always have uh links in there as well to all of our references and articles that we discuss on the show thank you so much for being a listener we uh hope you enjoy the content recommendations that's what we do around here and we'll see you next week